Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, Four Persons Radio Show fans. This is the Catholic Can Apologetic Show with me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned for you today. We will be discussing the Eucharist. If you like, would like a copy of today's show notes, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com. That's Catholic with a K and the, the number four, persons.com. I am also available to come speak at your parish on this or many other topics. You can contact me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. So let's get started with today's show on the Eucharist. Catholics and Protestants have different views on the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper as it is known in many Protestant faith traditions. Protestants and some Catholics have a hard time with Jesus' command that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. To understand the Eucharist, first we have to know the Jewish background behind it. Going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, God's first covenant was with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he told them, you know, you can live here in the garden and you'll have all the food you need and everything you need, just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Eve ate some after being tempted by the serpent and gave it to Adam and God kicked him out. So that was the first covenant that God had with Adam and Eve. They broke the covenant. They got kicked out of the garden. Through Adam and Eve, we get to Noah through their son Seth, and the descendants of Adam and Eve, you know, had gotten very sinful, so God told Noah to build an ark and then flooded the earth and wiped everything out. And God created a uh, covenant with Noah 
that he would never destroy the earth again. And from Noah, we have we come to Abraham, and God made a covenant with Abraham that he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars on in the sky or the sands on the seashore. And at one point, Abraham even is asked by God to sacrifice his son, his only son. But God stays his hand before he actually sacrifices his son. This prefigures God sacrificing his son, Jesus, and God, through Jesus, freely offered himself in sacrifice for our salvation. But way back in the book of Genesis, in chapter 14, we learn that after Abraham had won a battle against the five kings in the land of Canaan, he offered 10% of the spoils of the battle to the priest king of Salem named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek offered him bread and wine with his blessing. So this is from the book of Genesis, chapter 14, starting at verse 17. After his return from the defeat of the Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into his hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I, am, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what, but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshal, and Mamer their share. This is the first time a blessing after a thanksgiving. This is the first time a blessing was given after a thanksgiving offering. In Hebrew, the word for thanksgiving is todah. In Greek, the word becomes for thanksgiving becomes eucharistia. And this is where the English word eucharist comes from. So if you're ever wondering, you know, why we call the Eucharist the Eucharist, it comes from the Greek word for Thanksgiving, toda, the Greek word for Thanksgiving, Eucharistia. It's important to, to know the etymology of words so that when we come across them, we know where they came from, and it gives us a deeper understanding. In Exodus chapter 12, it tells us how the Israelites celebrated the first Passover before they left Egypt. 
by killing a male unblemished lamb and applying its blood to the doorframe. The Israelites had to roast the lamb and eat the lamb along with unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and wine. They did this while the angel of death passed over their homes and didn't kill their firstborn sons. If they didn't eat the lamb, then the firstborn son would die. So the very first Passover required the killing of the lamb and the consuming of the lamb. Uh, in John chapter 3, at the baptism of Jesus, maybe it's chapter 1, uh, John the Baptist says to about Jesus as he's approaching him, Behold the Lamb of God. So this tells us that Jesus is like the same lamb as the lambs that the Israelites had to kill for the first Passover. It's a great connection there. After leaving Egypt, the Israelites received the miraculous bread from heaven called manna in the morning and quail for flesh in the evening. And we find that in Exodus chapter 16. The manna was the miraculous daily bread. The Israelites kept some of the manna in the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments and Aaron's staff. And the Ark of the Covenant is a prefigurement of the tabernacle that we have in Catholic churches now, where we keep the consecrated Eucharist hosts in between Masses. That's where Jesus is still present with us in the tabernacle. And just as the miraculous bread of manna fell from the sky, the form of small disks like flakes of bread, uh, Jesus in Catholic churches, we have unleavened bread in the form of a disk in the tabernacle. So it's very similar there. Later, the Israelites built the portable temple specified by God to Moses in the book of Exodus chapter 26. This temple had a special altar for the bread of the presence and a pitcher of wine in the holy place. And how many loaves of bread was there? There were 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this was a perpetual offering that was always present in the temple. And then also, there's a pitcher of wine. And this special bread of the presence and the wine prefigure Jesus being presented to us in Mass under the form of bread and wine. In the Catholic Church, we recognize that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and he's also present in the cup of wine transformed into the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Now, you might wonder how can Jesus also, Jesus' body also be present in the cup of wine, 
but during the Eucharistic prayers and well actually it's toward the end of the Eucharistic liturgy the priest breaks off a small piece of the host that he has consecrated and made into the body of Christ through the, the power of Jesus and drops that into the cup of wine so that's how the body of Christ gets into the blood of Christ and in the Catholic Church we recognize that Jesus is fully present in every crumb of the Eucharistic bread this bread was um, bread was called the bread of angels or the face of God in Hebrew that's referring to the cakes of bread that would have been in the holy place in the portable temple and this um, this altar was also present in the temple built by Solomon and then later rebuilt by Herod on the Day of Atonement that is called Yom Kippur the priests would take the bread of the presence out and show it to the faithful Jews while the priests proclaimed behold God's love for you so therefore it was not a great leap for the Jews to believe that God could be present in the bread in the Gospel of John chapter 6 Jesus gives his bread of life speech when Jesus says in John chapter 6 you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life all the Jews and the disciples are scandalized by the saying everyone took Jesus seriously and left except the 12 disciples who also didn't understand at this time Judas decided to betray Jesus because he didn't believe Jesus it wasn't until the Last Supper that the disciples understood how they were to eat his flesh and drink his blood this is covered in Matthew chapter 26 mark chapter 14 Luke chapter 22 and by Paul and 1st Corinthians chapter 11 in every chapter Jesus says this is my body about the bread and this is my blood about the cup of wine the words are plain and easy to understand here this is what it says in John chapter 6 the bread from heaven starting at verse 31 our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat Jesus said to them truly truly I say to you it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world they said to him Lord give us this bread always and the Jews that were listening to Jesus at that time were like the same Jews that uh, Jesus had fed earlier when he fed like the 5,000 so they were looking for that free meal but Jesus is trying to explain him that he himself is the bread that comes down from heaven and all of this takes place about a year before the Passover feast where Jesus offers himself in sacrifice so this is important to understand as a prefigure 
of a prefigurement, you know, it's the basis for understanding how we can understand Jesus was talking about. So for a year before the he was offered, before he was crucified, he had been giving this teaching. So after Jesus explains to the Jews that he's the bread that came down from heaven, he says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, some of our Protestant brothers and sisters will use this section to say that, you know, everyone who's given to Jesus by God, Jesus will not lose, and he will raise them up on the last day. And we can say amen to that. Jesus does not cast us out. However, since we have free will, we can leave God. Just like Adam and Eve left God uh, and were thrown out of the garden because they didn't listen to him. So God makes covenants with his people, but when we don't fill our part of the covenant, we can leave that covenant and lose our salvation. Picking up here at four, verse 41, the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, it is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I have come down from heaven. Jesus answered them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus here is talking about how God has sent him, and anyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now, some Protestants, 
you know, see this word believe and think that all you have to do is give mental assent to Jesus as a believer and you have eternal life. And as Catholics, we can agree with that and say, yes, if you die right after that, after coming to believe in Jesus, you will have eternal life through Jesus. However, if you live beyond that point and you believe in Jesus, you have to live as Jesus calls us to. Part of that is eating Jesus under the form of bread, which Jesus says is his flesh. So picking up again at verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died, but he who eats this bread will live forever. This he said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So Jesus makes it very clear by here by saying, truly, truly, this is true. Yet our Protestant brothers and sisters, you know, have to deny that Jesus really meant this. And Jesus makes it very clear by saying it three times that you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life. Now, that, that does not necessarily mean that our physical bodies will live forever, not until the resurrection and we get our immortal bodies. Will our body live forever, our physical body? But our spiritual life will continue on forever. If you want to abide in Jesus forever, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, picking up in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, will you also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed that you have and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was the one of the twelve to betray him. So the disciples didn't really understand what Jesus was talking about, but as Peter says, who else should we go to? And Peter says that you have the words of eternal life and that they believe him even if they don't quite understand. So about a year later, they're having the Last Supper and 
Jesus explains to him then how they can eat his flesh and drink his blood. So in Matthew chapter 26, we have the Last Supper. And starting at verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, Eucharistia in Greek, Eucharist in English, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, which would have contained wine and some water, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And in verse 30 says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So the Jesus and the disciples are eating the Passover meal here. And part of the Passover meal includes drinking cups of wine. And they had just drink, drank the third cup, which is the cup of blessing. But they hadn't yet drank the fourth cup. And in between the third and the fourth cup, part of the Passover tradition was to sing a hymn. But Jesus cuts the Passover meal short by leaving the Passover meal and heading out to the Mount of Olives, where he was going to pray that God let this cup pass him by. And Right before this, Judas leaves and goes out to betray Jesus by going to the temple priests to turn over Jesus. Now, this is Mark's account of the Last Supper. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he, had, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Mark in chapter 14 gives us basically the same account that we have from Matthew chapter 26. In Luke chapter 22, we have his account of the Last Supper, starting at verse, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So again, this is confirmation that Jesus is and his disciples are eating a Passover meal. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. 
After taking the cup, he give, gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, some people might be confused about Jesus uh, blessing the, or telling the apostles to share the first cup, and then blessing and sharing the bread with them, and then doing the same thing with the cup again. But you have to understand the Jewish Passover meal. As I previously mentioned, the third cup is the cup of blessing. And Jesus doesn't drink the fourth cup. So this first cup mentioned in Luke chapter 20 is likely the second cup of wine drunk during the Passover meal. And then after sharing blessing and sharing the bread, he gives them the third cup. In Luke chapter 24, we learn that after the crucifixion, two disciples on the road to Emmaus came to know Jesus through the breaking of bread, which was the Eucharist. So in Luke chapter 24, we have the two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus because they, since Jesus had been crucified on the cross, they thought that, you know, this whole new version of Judaism is over. But Jesus catches up to them and they don't recognize him until they stop for the evening and they share a meal together. And during this meal, Jesus blesses the bread and the cup and shares that with them. And it's a short Luke writes this in the shortcut version of breaking of the bread. This is mentioned throughout the book of Acts also, many times where it refers to the breaking of the bread. But it's just a shortcut version of the Eucharistic meal, which is a development of the Passover meal. So when you understand the Passover and the what the breaking of the bread means, the Bible makes a whole lot more sense. And you have to remember that since everything in the Bible was originally handwritten, breaking of the bread is a very loaded term. It's the whole Eucharistic meal. Instead of writing, you know, Jesus blessed and shared the bread and blessed and shared the cup, they just write breaking of the bread. If you lived in the culture of the time, you understood what it meant. If you are a modern American and you just read breaking of the bread, that means like, you might think that means like you take a loaf of bread and you tear it into pieces and give everybody a chunk. But there's so much more meaning in the word, in the phrase breaking of the bread. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been crucified, so let us keep the feast. So, again, this is a reminder that Jesus had altered the Passover meal and that Jesus is the Passover lamb, and you have to eat the flesh of the son of, of the lamb to have eternal life. Because in the original Passover, if you didn't eat the lamb, the angel of death would kill you if you were the firstborn. I'm the secondborn, so I would have been safe, but still, I would have ate the lamb. And I continue to eat the lamb of God because I'm a Catholic, and I recognize that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist. So, this is how the Passover lamb that had to be eaten to be saved is connected to Jesus, the new Passover lamb, and that we have to be saved. In Revelation chapter 5 and onward, Jesus is also identified as the lamb. So it's a great connection here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes about being Christ being our Passover lamb. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the Passover lamb. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, it is, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because of the loaf of bread is one, we though many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. This shows the unity of the first Christians and the celebration of the Eucharist. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives his account of the Last Supper, where Jesus says the, body is his, the bread is his body and the wine is his blood. This is the earliest account of this event in Scripture. Because Paul's writings actually predate the writing of the Gospels. Now, the events that are recounted in the Gospels do predate Paul's writing, but they weren't written down. So that's why it's very important to recognize that the Catholic faith was passed on orally before it was passed down in writing. So many of our Protestant brothers and sisters you know, insist on going by the Bible alone, but the very first Christians couldn't go by the Bible alone because the New Testament had not been written for a large part of the early church. Jesus' words about his body and blood are, again, very plain in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and they're very easy to understand. Paul warns, that if you are in a sinful state or don't recognize it as the body and blood of Jesus, you compound your sin, and that is why many are sick and dying. Paul also says, we have no other practices, and neither do the churches of God. So again, this practice of the Eucharist, the modified Passover meal, was universal in the early church. It's not something new that was made up in the Middle Ages by the Catholic Church or 
in the 300s by an alleged corrupt Catholic Church. But because many Protestants believe that, you know, after Christianity became legal under Constantine, that the Catholic Church, you know, corrupted Christianity and is no longer like the version that they have in their church. But if you truly read the Bible, you'll see that early Christians were Catholics, and we'll be getting into some of the early church fathers who wrote about the Eucharist soon. Now, in the book of Hebrews, we learn about the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. The Catholic Church represents the sacrifice that Jesus started in the upper room on Holy Thursday and finished on the cross on Good Friday at Mass every day during the Eucharistic prayer. It is the same sacrifice that Jesus performed but represented like the Jews represented the original Passover. The Eucharist is the perfect sacrifice that Christians have been celebrating from the beginning during the breaking of the bread. Uh, we need to understand that, again, the Jewish roots of the Eucharist, there was the original Passover, and then the Jews celebrated the Passover feast every year, but they also celebrated a like a mini Passover on Friday nights, which is the beginning of their Saturday. And in this mini Passover meal, they would again give thanks uh, for the blessings of the week because Friday night began, began their day of worship of God. And the Shabbat meal that Orthodox Jews celebrate today is the same kind of meal that the, well, comparable to the meal that the Jews would have been celebrating at the time of Jesus. Now, this is uh, kind of a question and answer referring to the Eucharist and Ignatius of Antioch. Someone wrote, I have a quick apologetic question. A Protestant Facebook page was denying the Eucharist, and I pasted St. Ignatius' quote about the Eucharist. Let us stand aloof from such heretics. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confess that the Eucharist is not, because they confess that the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which the Father of his goodness raised up again. And this is from Ignatius of Antioch, the epistle of Ignatius to the Smyrnaeans. Now the Protestant antagonist responded with this. I have a homework assignment for you. I want you to find out who those who hold heterodox opinions are. I want you to find out what they believe. I want you to read this letter from the beginning to the end and look for the context of which you posted. Can you confirm if this affirm can you confirm in the affirmative that Ignatius had 
Aristotelian concepts in mind when writing this letter. So any idea that he is referring to and how to respond, if you don't have time to respond, I understand. Mike is a friend, of course, and I had time to respond. So I'm not sure what he is referring to other than the 1200s Aquinas defined transubstantiation using the terms of Aristotelian philosophy of substance and accidents. So the Protestant is trying a trick question to get you admit that St. Ignatius did not know about transubstantiation in Aristotelian terms and therefore did not believe in transubstantiation. The truth is, doctrine developed of, develops over time. For example, Ignatius would not have described the two natures of Christ in terms of the hypostatic union, nor the Trinity in the sophisticated words of generation, proceeds, and spiration that were later used to more carefully and philosophically define what Orthodox Christians had always believed but were later developed further to combat the heretics. So Protestants, you know, they recognize that Ignatius is referring to Jesus' true presence in the Eucharist, but they are trying to discount Ignatius' reference here because Ignatius doesn't use the Aristotelian terms Aquinas used in the 1200s. Now, for those of you who don't know what Aristotelian terms means, it refers to Aristotle, the Greek philosopher. And he, in his philosophy, he used terms that could describe things that were outside the physical world but have a physical appearance in this world. And Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s uses that same kind of philosophy to help us understand the spiritual things that are beyond our ability to perceive in the physical world with our physical senses. And that's the Thing about the Eucharist and that Jesus is present in the Eucharist even though it looks like just bread and wine but it's not because it looks like bread and wine that it's Jesus Jesus said that the bread is his body and the wine is his blood and we believe Jesus and using the terms of Aristotle, we can understand how a thing can have a physical presentation on the outside and be something different on the inside. It's important to note too that you know the canon of the New Testament took over 400 years to develop and to be firmly established. So neither St. Paul nor Ignatius could have rattled off the 27 books that are in the New Testament canon 
since that also took time to develop into a Protestant canon, the canon of scripture used Protestants today. And a lot of Protestants don't understand this. They, they assume like the first Christians had a complete Bible with a New Testament. And the truth is that it took pretty much the whole first century for the, all the writings of the New Testament to be written. And because the Protestants, you know, their version of Christianity was invented in the 1500s after the Bible was commonly available because of movable type having been developed, they don't know enough about Bible history to recognize that the Bible that we have today didn't exist for the first Christians. Some Protestants, you know, tried to uh, have small church worship, you know, where they just meet at somebody's house and read the Bible, and they think they're doing what the first Christians were doing. <laughs> uh, but the first Christians didn't have a New Testament. The scriptures that they read uh, as they were going from house to house was the Old Testament. The first Christians weren't sitting around reading the book of Revelation. They weren't reading John's gospel. Depending on which part of the century you're referring to, you know they may have had some writings from Paul or the gospel of Matthew. Uh, the first writings of the New Testament, you know, were not written down for about 10 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. So for 10 years, they didn't have any writings of the New Testament. So even though Protestants, you know, tried to use Ignatius' only slight understanding and description of the Eucharist, Ignatius believed in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, the two natures of Christ, the Trinity, and though he would have not have used sophisticated words later developed to define these things more precisely and deeply, the little, the little sapling doesn't look like the big oak tree. They are organically the same thing. And that's often a uh, an analogy that people use that uh, the same DNA is in an acorn, a small oak tree, and a great big oak tree. And that's used to as an example of the Catholic Church in that we have Jesus, the acorn, and he taught his apostles the small tree but the tree continues to grow over time and becomes a great big tree. So the small tree in Jerusalem grew out, grew bigger and spread out over the whole Mediterranean basis, basin and has, is now around the world because you can find Catholic Christianity in most any country in the world. Now, here's some writings from the early church fathers on the Eucharist. One of the earliest Christian writings we have is called the Didache, which is the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And it is an early church document 
that was used by the bishops and priests for the instruction of the people becoming Christians. So this writing was written at the same time as the rest of the New Testament writings. <clears throat> and it's kind of like the earliest catechism or manual on how to run a church. And in the Didache, it says, Let no one eat or and drink of the, your Eucharist, but those who have been baptized in the name of the Lord. To this, too, the saying of the Lord is applicable. Do not give to dogs what is holy. So this shows that the early Christians recognized that the bread and wine were not ordinary, but supernatural foods. So this confirms, you know, what Jesus, what we learn that Jesus taught from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and Paul, when he writes about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. In 90 AD, St. Clement, the third bishop of Rome after Peter, wrote a corrective letter to the Corinthians. Clement writes that he, Jesus, commanded us to celebrate sacrifices and services at fixed times and hours. Our sin will not be small if we eject from the episcopate those who blamelessly and holily have offered its sacrifices. So this shows that from the beginning, the Catholic Church recognized that the Mass was a sacrifice. It is a representation of Jesus' sacrifice that he started in the upper room, the Passover meal, and finished on the cross. In the Mass, the Last Supper, where Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins, presented like the Jewish Passover meal, is represented from the original Passover meal. And this is some more from Ignatius of Antioch that is written around 110 AD. So right after the first century, this is how the early Christians understood the Eucharist. So Ignatius of Antioch writes in his letter to the Smyrnaeans, Consider how contrary to the mind of God are the heterodox in regard to the grace of God which has come to us. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his letter to the Ephesians, Ignatius also writes, Come together in common, in one faith, and in the one Jesus Christ, and break one bread, which is the medicine of immortality and the antidote against death enabling us to live forever in Jesus Christ. And Ignatius writes in his letter to the Philadelphians, he wrote, Take care, then, to use one Eucharist, so that whatever you do, you do according to God. For there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ, and one cup in the union of his blood, one altar, as there is one bishop with the priest's and my fellow servants, the deacons. This shows that Ignatius, an early bishop, in what 
he described as the Catholic Church believed that Jesus was present in the Eucharistic bread and wine. So the Catholic understanding of the Eucharist is right there from the beginning. Some people think that because transubstantiation is the word that used to describe the Eucharist that was developed in the 1500s is, you know, so much later that the early Christians didn't understand Jesus' true presence in the bread and wine from the beginning. But the fact is, the Bible says it, the, next, the Christians of the next century say it also. So it is a belief from the very beginning of Christianity. It's not something that was made up in the Middle Ages, just because the word transubstantiation was developed in the Middle Ages. In 150 AD, Justin Martyr wrote in his first apology, which is an explanation of Christianity at that time, this food that we call the Eucharist, of which no one is allowed to partake except one who believes that the things we teach are true and has received the washing for forgiveness of sins and for rebirth, that is baptism, and who believes as Christ handed down to us. For we do not receive these things as common bread or common drink, but as Jesus Christ, our Savior, being incarnate by God's word, took flesh and blood for our salvation. So also we have been taught that the food consecrated by the word of prayer, that's Eucharistic prayer, and comes from him, that's Jesus, from which our flesh and blood are nourished by transformation is the flesh and blood of that incarnate Jesus. So here in 150 AD, an early Christian is writing about how we believe that Jesus is present in the bread and wine and that it is his flesh and blood. Now the important thing to remember here is that, yes, this guy is writing this stuff, but nobody is saying that Ignatius and Justin Martyr are getting it wrong. In fact, these writings are copied and shared amongst the early Christians as confirmation and to be used for teaching other Christians coming into the faith. Now, Justin Martyr also has another writing called Dialogue with Trifo, who was a Jewish rabbi. And in this Dialogue with Trifo, Justin writes, God has therefore announced in advance that all the sacrifice offered in his name, which Jesus Christ offered, that is, in the Eucharistic bread and the chalice of wine, which are offered by us Christians in every part of the world, are pleasing to him. In 180 AD, St. Irenaeus, the second bishop of Lyon, which is in France now, who learned the faith from Polycarp, who learned the faith from the Apostle John. So the understanding that Irenaeus has about the Eucharist comes from Polycarp, which comes from the Apostle John. So this is our chain of understanding that goes back to an apostle. Now, Irenaeus writes in his book Against Heresies, 
Christ has declared the cup, a part of creation, to be his own blood, from which he causes our blood to flow, and the bread, a part of creation, he has established as his own body, from which he gives increase to our bodies. These two then receive the word of God and become the Eucharist, which is the body and blood of Christ. And Ignatius, or I'm sorry, Irenaeus also writes, For just as the bread which comes from the earth, having received the invocation of God, is no longer ordinary bread, but the Eucharist, consisting of two realities, earthly and heavenly, so our bodies, having received the Eucharist, are no longer corruptible, because they have hope of the resurrection. In 200 AD, St. Clement of Alexandria of Egypt wrote, Eat my flesh, Jesus says, and drink my blood. The Lord supplies us with these two intimate nutrients. He delivers over his flesh and pours out his blood, and nothing is lacking for the growth of his children. Oh, incredible mystery. So Clement recognizes that this is a great idea that's still very hard for people to understand. One more quick one here. St. Cyprian of Carthage in North Africa wrote, the priest who in 246 AD, who imitates, the priest who imitates what Christ did, truly takes the place of Christ and offers there in the church a true and perfect sacrifice to God the Father. For Christ is the bread of life, and the bread here, because Christ is the bread of those of us who attain to his body. So in 246 AD, the understanding is that the priest transforms the bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus. It's not something new made up in the Middle Ages. And I have a whole lot more here from other church fathers, but we don't have time for them today. So thanks for tuning in today. If you would like a copy of today's show notes or have a follow-up question, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com or look me up on Facebook. If you'd like to have me come speak at your parish or on this or any other topic, send me an email at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.